We're going beyond the whistle with George Lynch on lessons from playing for legendary coaches and HBCU heroes supporting student athletes. You are listening to Beyond the Whistle, the podcast that takes basketball coaches beyond the X's and O's to help you grow your network, make a plan for your career, and maximize your influence. Beyond the Whistle is brought to you by McCant Sports, a career management and consulting firm for college basketball coaches. Learn more at McCantSports.com. Welcome to Beyond the Whistle. I'm your host, Odell McCants, and thank you for listening. I'm honored to have a guest on this episode who is a 1993 NCAA men's basketball national championship winner at the University of North Carolina, a 12-year NBA veteran, head coach at Clark Atlanta University, and my friend George Lynch. George, welcome to Beyond the Whistle. Thanks for having me. So, George, you know, I, we've known each other, and I, I think it's a little over 30 years now. And, uh, <laughs> Don't but, tell our age, man. I know, and I didn't want to take anything for granted. I still do my homework for these interviews, and I, I learned something of you, something about you that I did not know, that you are second all-time in steals at Carolina? Yeah, I was uh, – well, you know what, man? Kids don't stay in school long enough, so hopefully that, that record will stay around for for about 20 more years. <laughs> Think about all the great guards that came out of there, and you as a forward. I mean, I was – I mean, I knew you were a defensive stopper, but I was shocked to see that. Yeah, I, I took I took a lot of pride in defending, man. Uh, got a story. My, my stepfather came home one time from the park playing with some bigger guys, and he was like – Complaining, I was complaining they weren't passing me the ball. And he asked me, he said, can you play defense? I said, yes. He said, can you dribble? I said, yes. He said, "He said, well, play defense, steal the ball, dribble down the court, and shoot yourself. So when I played with older guys, I had to learn to defend, you know, bigger, stronger, smaller, quicker guards and, and players when I was a youth. And I took a lot of pride in it because I didn't have to worry about someone passing me the ball if uh, if if I didn't get it. And that's like life, isn't it? Stop complaining and just go get it yourself, right? Exactly. And I took yeah. a lot of pride in that. And George, I don't expect you to remember this, but when you first came up here to Flint Hill, uh, you were over at my house and you went to dinner with us. And for some reason, I think it was a it was Mother's Day, but I, I'm not quite. I don't quite remember that. I'm not, I'm not quite sure of that. And I had a neighbor, Alex Aquana, shout out to Alex, if he's listening, who was a big college basketball fan. And uh, I wanted to take you over there. So Alex could meet you. You could meet Alex. Uh, and, and Alex had a roommate who was not into sports that much. And uh, when we went over there. Uh, his friend's roommate asked if he, if you had schools recruiting you too, and he, and you said yes. And he asked you which ones, and you said all of them. And and he gave <laughs> a look like, who is this kid? Who is this smart Alex? And then Alex went and said, I, I can't remember the guy's name. He said, this is George Lynch. He's one of the top ten players in the country, so he's telling the truth. <laughs> and I've I've never forgotten that moment, man, because the look he gave you, it, it was I've never forgotten it. And <laughs> hey, if we'd have phones back then, it would have been classic, huh? <laughs> I know, I know. So yeah, George, not, I'm sorry. I was, I was just being honest. I didn't, you know, because it, you know, when you recruiting, you don't want to leave out the small schools and 
and things like that. So I just said all of them, man. I it, it's it's hard to say how many schools at that time, but I was getting shoe boxes and shoe boxes of letters. Yeah, what what were you gonna do? Yeah, you can't list the whole NCAA. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th- I thought it was the perfect answer. That was the perfect yeah. answer. So George, thinking about back those days, man, what was that transition for you like coming from Roanoke to join us up here at Flint Hill? I mean, you you all at Patrick Henry, you had won a state championship. Uh you had uh Curtis Blair, who was a great player too, was was a crosstown rival of mine. He was at University of Richmond and I was at VCU and now Curtis is refing in the NBA. What was that transition like for you? You know, it was it was it was hard. Uh I only had one family member in D.C. at the time. I had an aunt, but she lived in D.C. And we were, of course, we were in school in Virginia. Uh, so it was kind of hard to commute back and forth. So my first couple months, you know, I lived with Coach Vetter. Uh, it was Coach Vetter, Kevin Sutton. Not Kevin Sutton, but uh, Coach Kevin. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was, it was, it was, it was tough. Because, you know, I grew up with three sisters, you know, my mom, you know, I had family around all the time. And to go away to end of your junior year uh, at 17 years old, it was, that was, that was a tough, that was a tough deal. And it, 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 it toughened me up for college because, you know, most guys get to college to get homesick. I was already hardened in that routine of, you know, study hall, weightlifting, practice, you know, sitting in a room and focusing on your schoolwork. So it, it made that transition easy for me, but dealing with it for the year and a half, it was it was it was tough for me. Uh, you know, not seeing family, you know, until certain holidays or maybe every other weekend. Uh, you know, it was you know, we didn't have cell phones back then, so it was it was definitely tough going a few days without speaking to family members. Yeah, and what about on, on the court and uh, getting used to Coach Vetter and then you had another great forward there with Aaron Bain. What, what was that like on, on the court for you? Well, you know, when I left Patrick Henry, we had five guys play Division One, But they were all the year ahead of me in class-wise. Uh, so when to, my decision to leave Patrick Henry was to continue to play with, with great players. Uh, you know, the, the difference was, was the, you know, the practices, the intensity of practice when I got to Flint Hill, cause I thought I was in shape, but going through those the first two weeks of practices, you know, we had a running program, we had individual workouts, then you had practice, man, that was, that it was what I was looking for to help my game, uh, continue to rise and improve. but. I learned then where I thought I was in shape, I was not in shape. And uh, and it just took my game to another level. I know what you mean, man. Look, you, you're right. You think you're in shape until you meet Coach Vetter. You think you're working hard. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it took everything to a whole nother level, man. Oh, yeah. We were in – you know, I tell people when I left Flint Hill my senior year and got on campus at Chapel Hill, I guarantee I was in better shape than – everyone else on the team. I believe it. I believe it. You know, you know speaking of Coach Vetter, George, we, we hear about coaching trees a lot in college, but 
I don't think people realize Coach Vetter being a high school coach, what his coaching tree is like a former players. And I'm, I'm going to go down this list. And if I leave somebody out, if I miss somebody, please let me know, George. But obviously, present company, George Lynch, head coach at Clark Atlanta, Kevin Sutton, assistant coach at University of Rhode Island, Randolph Childress, associate head coach at Wake Forest, Nate James, associate head coach at Duke. You've got Levi Watkins at Ole Miss, uh, Cameron Dollar, former head coach at Seattle and now assistant coach at University of Washington. And then, you know, and then there are guys who are, uh, I think of other guys too, and like Marvin Lewis, who's an associate AD at Georgia Tech. He's not coaching directly, but, you know, but in administration. Yep. Uh, David Atkins, who didn't play for uh, – no, I, th- I think David – it did play with Coach Vetter. Yeah, uh, yeah c- played for him, coached with him, is now an assistant coach with the Wizards and one of the best uh, player development coaches, I think, in the country. He's a former assistant coach and national champion uh, at, 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 uh, at Maryland with their women's program. Uh, Alan Stein, who coached with Coach Vetter and coached at DeMatha and is now a big motivational speaker. And if I've left anyone out, please let me know. But what, what do you what do you think? Um, what what do you attribute that to? He coach Vetter coach Vetter did it the right way. Uh, he encouraged guys. Uh, he challenged them to learn the game, not just to play it. Uh, and it was at the purest form. I mean, he made sure the guys put the work in. He just didn't because I was a high school All American coming up there. I had to earn my spot. Uh, you know, and that was just my experiences. You know, you know, guys like Randolph Children came in. He had to earn his spot, fight for everything. You know, he went through the programs just like, you know, the last guy on the bench. Uh, we were all out in the sun running when everybody else was, you know, all our other friends from school were having out, hanging out, driving around, you know, downtown D.C. So we learned to respect the game. Yes. In addition to Coach Vetter, you know, you have been around some of the greatest coaches and basketball minds of all time. I mean, Dean Smith, Larry Brown, uh, Mitch Kupchak as an executive. What have you taken from those experiences that are now part of your coaching philosophy? Um, I, try to, I try to treat, like you said, I try to treat all guys fairly. Of course, talent and, and skill set is going to rise above. But, um, you know, I don't know if you remember. Remember, uh, Coach Vetter used to have us cutting his grass and doing yard work around his house. And you get uh-huh. that one, you get that one shoe. Uh-huh. And you have to come back the next week to get the other one. Uh, it was, it was, it was, it was slavery back then. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yep. but, but, you know, you know, the tw- the last man on the bench got, got one shoe, just like a superstar got one shoe, and and that's when you learn to respect. Your teammates, your teammates respect you. Uh, he did it the right way, you know. And although I wasn't on the team for more than uh, a, a year and a half, uh, he made sure that 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 I put in the proper respect and earned the respect from my teammates. And he made sure that the teammates welcomed me as a new player with open arms, even though I was coming in to to, to take someone's minutes and time. Uh, I think we all learned to respect each other because we. We did the hard work before the games together as a team and as a unit. Yeah. And, you know, I know Coach Smith – I mean, I'm sorry. I know Coach Vetter modeled a lot of the Flint Hill program after what Dean Smith was doing at North Carolina. Yes. 
and so how was that transition like for you from from Flint Hill and Coach Vetter to Dean Smith, obviously one of the greatest coaches of all time? Well, it's, it's funny because even at Patrick Henry, my uh, my guidance counselor played Dick Kepley played at Carolina for Dean oh, Smith. Oh, I didn't know that. And my high school coach at Patrick Henry kind of ran a similar similar offense. You know, being in that part of Virginia. You either followed North Carolina. You were either a North Carolina fan or you were a Virginia fan. And there was a lot of Tar Heel fans and a lot of coaches that came up, starting at Patrick Cameron with Woody Deans, uh, and then Coach Vetter, and then, of course, uh, you know, playing for Coach Smith. The terminology was the same, make the open pass, screen for your teammates, you know, just good team basketball. So that transition when I got to Carolina, you know, although I was a – you know, McDonald's All-American. I was on a team with several other McDonald's All-Americans, King Rice, Rick Fox, you know, Scott Williams. You learn to sacrifice in the in better, betterment of the team. And that was, I think, out of all the things that they taught, all three coaches, they wanted us to play team basketball. So that transition going to North Carolina, fitting in, was not a big issue for me because it wasn't about me. It was about the team. And what what have you carried over from that to your coaching uh, today? I, I I try to treat everybody fairly. Uh, even, you know, my first year at Clark, you know, you had guys, you know, when new coach come in, a lot of guys want to transfer. A lot of guys, you know, want to be fair opportunity. And that's what I told the guys. I said, listen, yes, the, the previous coach gave me some ideas who the players were, but all you guys have a clean slate to compete for playing time. And if you earn your time, you will play. It's about winning. And I had a guy who didn't make the team for the previous coach, uh, walked on, ended up starting 75% of the games. And this year, his second year on the team, at times was the best player on the floor. So, you know, the philosophy is if you put the work in and you earn the time, you will play. And that's that's one thing you took from Coach Smith. You took from um, Stu Vetter. Uh, you know things you do off the field. You know, are you getting your classwork done? I had nine guys out of my thirteen have a three point oh GPA oh, above. Great. great. So 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 it. And I told guys, I said it ain't just what you do on the court. If you handle your business in the classroom, I will reward you with playing time. And guys and guys appreciated that. So you just finished your second year at Clark Atlanta. How did you first prepare when you first got there? I know you talked about speaking with the guys and having having a clean slate, but from a from a from a strategy and building the program, I guess perspective. Um, how did you prepare for a new institution and a new league? Well, you know, the only thing that was new for me was just being that being that first chair. Uh, I've been around winning basketball, like I said. In high school, we won a state championship. Playing for Coach Vetter, you know, we were top five in the country. So I've been around what winning basketball looks like. I've been around coaches who's always won. You know, my my high school coach at Patrick Henry, Dean Woody Deans, is a is a Hall of Fame coach. Stu Vetter is a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, Dean Smith, Coach Smith, is a Hall of Famer. Larry Brown was a Hall of Famer. So all the all the great experiences or the good experiences throughout my basketball career, I kind of pulled those aside and said, "These, this is what I like. 
And then being a player on both sides, player and assistant coach, a strength conditioning coach, you see the reaction of players. You know, I know I have my own experiences from how I reacted from the things I like coaches did doing and, uh, and things that I didn't like a coach to do. And I put all those things aside. I, you know, I was always that, that type of player who sacrificed part of my game uh, for the betterment of the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I scored 20-something points a game in high school, got to Carolina and never scored uh, where I averaged about, you know, 12. So I had to sacrifice for the betterment of my team so that my teammates could reach their full potential. Uh, and and I was so – by seeing it from that perspective that it's not all about me, it made an easy transition for me to communicate with my players. So going into year two, what did you take away from year one that you may have changed, improved on the program and, and yourself as, as a coach? Well, I had to, I had to manage time. Uh, you know, you don't get, you don't get like 14, 15 scholarships like most schools. You know, my first, <clears throat> my first year I was playing with, with five scholarship players that was actually on the floor one or two of them had injuries, so they weren't completely healthy. So you're really playing every game with three scholarship players, and then you're trying to fill it in with role players, guys who walk on. Just hopefully, do you think they they know enough about the game that can help you? Then I went to uh, into my second year, and I basically played with two scholarship players the whole year because of injuries. One guy who was a 4.0 student coming out of high school enjoyed Atlanta too much in second semester he was ineligible. <laughs> so okay. so 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 now I'm dealing with, you know, a couple guys with partials, you know, two full scholarship guys who basically played 40 minutes the whole season. And um and because I was able because of a player like myself, I was that that type of glue guy, I was able to fit guys into their roles. And then, you know, because I watched you know, the way Coach Smith and the way Larry Brown coached, you emphasize practice on fundamentals within the offense and defense. You, you always stress about team defense, even though you're guarding an individual, but you're not on the island by yourself. Try to get the guys to care about each other. And then for that, nowadays you can only practice eight hours a week. So for that hour and a half, the two-hour practice that you're able to have, try to maximize as much as you can and make sure the guys could grasp what you're teaching. You you don't want to move so fast that guys aren't picking the concept up. I would rather have, you know, five sets with eight different options and have 40 plays than have 120 plays and nobody know your offense. Mm-hmm. So I had, so because I didn't have the maximum scholarship guys and, and when I say scholarship guys, you know, guys, you go out and recruit, you know, athletically there basketball iq is there you almost have to simplify your offense and defense keep it simple so your team can have success mm-hmm. and that's how i got away with it my second year and wh- what have you learned about yourself after two years of being the head coach well i ha- i learned i have to learn that i have to have more patience okay uh, you know, even though, you know, you, I'm going on 50 now, you still think that you can make plays when you see them on the court or you may see it happening, or, you know, before it happens. And then you have to understand that, look, 
you're dealing with Division Two guys. Uh, there's a reason they they play in Division Two. Uh, it may be talent wise, it may be basketball IQ wise, it just may be a, a lucky break here and there. But majority of these guys, they still love basketball. They're not as athletic as you see at the Power Five conferences. But you know, and then you have to adjust to your players. When you when you when you recruit for North Carolina, you know you're gonna get the top of everything, cream of the crop, you know, at the power fives. But at the division twos, you might have a six five post guy, you might have a, a five five guard, and you just have to adjust to the players that you have. You can't throw a lob to a point guard at a division one and expect to make that same play at the division two. So you you the expectation out of plays that that worked at the division one level. Uh, they don't work the same way at the Division Two level. So, George, as we're recording this, you know, we still find ourselves in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And sometimes I think about it, I'm not going to mention it on episodes, but I feel like I would, it wouldn't be responsible if I, if I didn't as, while, reporting, uh, while we are recording this. And I think there are things that coaches are doing that other coaches can learn from. How are you currently communicating with and working with your staff and team during this during this time? Well, uh, of course, I continue to constantly communicate with my uh, my assistants, uh, the players. You know, everybody's went home uh, right now. I'm trying to. Well, actually, I started a campaign for, and this is another subject we needed to talk a little bit about. SIAC conference. You know, a lot of these kids are first-generational college students. They're scholarship-based. Some have been awarded help from, you know, the federal government. And so now we challenge with distance learning. My goal is to try and get every student-athlete in the HBCU computers. Uh, You know, I've had about six of my 13 student athletes don't have the, the learning devices to be able to learn mm-hmm. uh, off campus because when they're on campus, they have the computer labs, they have friends with computers, uh, laptops, and they got the desktop. So now, uh, you know, being forced to go distance learning, you know, they don't have the devices. Some student athletes don't have Wi-Fi, a good Wi-Fi signal too. And then they got siblings who they got to share their home computers with. So it's a challenge for the, most of these student athletes to do this distance learning. Um, so I've been reaching out to um, as many HBCUs as possible. I'm working with uh, with Dell and Microsoft to see if we can get some devices out to these student athletic departments so that they can loan them out to their student athletes so they can finish their education and stay eligible. You know that. That's a that's a factor that people aren't really bringing up about distance learning, and you you hear about I think more at the secondary and elementary you know school level, but no one is talking about college students who are coming home to a lack of Wi-Fi uh, and or, or 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 device to use. True, true. So you know because and it came about because um, you know my challenge with my student athletes. Once we had to, you know, send them home, you know, they saying that the device they have is not working, is, is, you know, a dinosaur outdated. So the challenge is to get these student athletes what they need to uh, continue their success and be able to provide for their families someday. 
Yeah, you know, and I've been really proud, George, of how you've jumped right into the Clark Atlanta community and the greater Atlanta community and your support of HBCUs, because I feel like, you know, you don't have to be an alum of an HBCU to, to, to care and to contribute. I, I feel like whether you went to an HBCU or not, we're all at least a byproduct of HBCU. I mean, I think about myself. I mean, my, my dad is is an undergrad and medical school uh, graduate of Howard. That's direct, but even our leaders who have, you know, transformed our country um, and given and helped fight so for so many of the rights that we have today were products of HBCU. So you don't have to be a direct alum uh, to care. Uh, and And I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, and Zach, I was just agreeing with what you said, and and we got to do we got to do a better job to you know get the enrollment up um, for HBCUs. I was just looking at you know the different conferences and the teams and and their enrollment. You know, some schools are operating with just fifteen hundred students, mm-hmm. and you know, like I said, that's you know historically black colleges are a great great uh, experience for 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 students um, and we just got to give them a chance also. Yeah. Now the project you mentioned, I know was something that you had kicked off way before this pandemic and distance learning the HBCU heroes. And I know that's your focus now uh, is getting computers uh, and devices uh, to, to HBCU student athletes. Uh, but what, what was that when, when you kicked it off, what was the uh, initial uh, goal and, and mission? So the initial goal and mission was, you know, when I accepted the job at Clark is to try and help raise uh, funds for the athletic department. A lot of people don't talk about it, but you know, college sports at black colleges, they don't get the same support TV dollars as our uh, white institutions. And, and, you know, so to get out and support a game, you know, it's five, four, six dollars to a game, just showing your support for these student athletes who are asked to practice and keep their grades up uh, with limited resources that our counterparts have. Uh, and then, like you said, uh, you know, I went to North Carolina, so you know, my experiences in college is totally different than what my student athletes go through, you know, just the, the whole experience on and off the court. Uh, so when I got the job, we, the previous coach, Daryl Walker, you know, was a big art collector and we were asked to, you know, try and continue uh, the, his fundraising efforts. And I'm not, I was clueless at, you know, at art, collecting art and things like that. So, we, we, we did it the first year, uh, you know, of course, you know, starting out fundraising and doing like that, you lose dollars. We, we lost money on our first event, but we, the passion was still there to, and the need was there to continue to help these athletic departments. And then as I went through my first year of conference, you know, I started seeing the other, these, like you said, these historically black institutions you know, struggling to maintain their facilities. We rebranded and said, look, not only does Clark need the support or Morehouse or, you know, Tuskegee, you know, Howard, you know, we said, look, let's, let's do something. Use my platform as a former player. Uh, 
you see Steph Curry gave a large you know donation to, to Howard. Try to get some of these athletes and entertainers, both football, basketball, baseball, to get involved and help support some of these smaller schools. And uh, then we rebranded the name from from Arts for Athletes to HBCU Heroes because like you said, you didn't have to, you don't have to go to an HBCU. I didn't go to an HBCU. A lot of people that supported us in our initiative to raise these computers didn't go to HBCUs. And and my goal was if if we can give students at HBCUs a better experience like we do at our, you know, you know, at the Carolinas, you know, by the sporting events help improve the experience of students on campus. And, and then it brings dollars into these uh, universities. If we can do the same thing with black colleges, you know, I think it would help offset some of the expenses. Uh, students will have a lot more pride in their institutions because they have a winning sport. And um, the competition, you know, um, brings itself between your rival schools and other schools. Uh, you know, experiencing the, the, the rivalry between Morehouse and, and Clark was a great experience. Uh, you know, the, the excitement is kind of on that same level as a Duke Carolina matchup, you know, the, the whole campus is shut down those days. So it's, it's one of those experiences. That's why we rebranded to HBCU heroes to not just help the institution it was to help all HBCUs and try to bring awareness to it. You see Cam Newton wearing his black college sweatshirts, Chris Paul wearing his black college shirts. We just want to help and spread the word that don't forget about the small institutions that, that help build our country. And George, I'm going to have a link to your HBCU heroes website in the show notes. So how can listeners help? You can go to hbcuheroes.org. Uh, we're also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and you can donate. You can send it on gently used computers. Of course, clean all your info off of it. Uh, the goal is to get 6,000 computers out there and help serve. Um, there's 100 universities out there and, of course, uh, 100 black HBCU universities. Uh, schools and and they all have team sports so we're trying to help these athletes that's in need uh i know we can't help everyone but if we can try and you know make a dent in the athletic population at hbcus i think it'd be a blessing so you can hbcuheroes.org and we also have social media yeah and i'll be sure to add all those links in the show notes George, do you think we could ever see a CIAA, SIAC challenge as part of this uh, campaign? Well, the SIAC is, is, is Division two, But I think, you know, it would be great, yeah, to challenge alumni from each institution to see how many, uh, you know, or their conference or, you know, their rival schools, how many they can uh, come up with for um, their student-athletes. And I, and I'm, I mean, I, and I mean, also on on the court. Do you think we could see a a, a, a challenge of the two conferences uh, like that? Maybe. Well, maybe, well, maybe the problem you see Clark and Virginia Union and yeah. Morehouse so, you know, play Bowie. The so the so the problem that you're having. I'm glad you brought that up because this is what's going to happen. 
if they don't get back to that challenge and that school pride where they play, and, and sometimes, you, you know, Division twos don't want to play Division ones because, you know, but like A&T and, and Hampton, you know, Howard could be the next school. They jump in to the, um, the Sunbelt Conference or the South. The, the, the Big South, jump, huh? Big South. Yeah, so they so they jumping out of their conferences, and what's going to happen is they're going to be forced to follow the dollars, and then the rivalries, like you said, between North Carolina A&T and Howard or, you know, Winston-Salem State, they're no longer going to be rivalries because they're not going to be able to play each other because they're in a different conference, and the strength of schedule, they don't want to lose to a non- conference school even if it is an hbcu so you know in our conference we had to play a lot of the schools down south in florida for strength of schedule and it it leaves that you know instead of us going up to shaw or jc smith which are d2 schools you know we don't get an opportunity to play so you go five or six years without playing you got generation of students who don't know anything about the rivalries or the historical matchups. So we got to get our alumni, even if you didn't go to a HBCU to give back any, any, any amount helps. And George, I like that you found something that you could be passionate about. If art was not your thing, I mean, you found something you could be passionate about. What advice would you give to coaches who are at programs where they need to raise money, other D2s, D3s, and maybe even low D1s, you know, that, that have to really go out and raise money. What advice would you give to them with, with, with that type of campaign? Um, I think, like you said, if you, find, if you find a cause and a need, and my need, you know, I'm, I'm not a fundraiser, but I've done a great job when I know that my student athletes need it. So if I'm asking for my student athletes, it's easier to ask for just give it to me and I give it to my program. No, my student athletes need this. So there's a need and, and where there's a need, you know, people will give, uh, you just got to talk to them and present it the right way. And as you said, George, that's going to pay off on the court and on the field. When you when you're, when your student athletes are proud, uh, and, and of what they have, uh, equipment, gear, devices i mean that that's going to pay off in a very winning way yeah it, you know the student athletes are they, they're human just like you know a normal student when they know that their coach cares about him he's fighting in the trenches trying to improve their situation they will put more out on the court and 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 that's that's what you know athletes ask for when they got a coach who, who they know really cares about them as a person more than them as an athlete, they're gonna give you. They're gonna give you. Uh, they'll give you a hundred percent. Well, George, thank you so much for being a guest today on Beyond the Whistle, and also want to thank you for your friendship. And we're gonna get going on some other projects. I know this this episode was way past due that we've been uh, discussing. You've got so many great ideas on giving back to communities and basketball and coaching. I'm really proud of you uh, for all that. George, where can listeners go to uh, connect with and follow you? You can follow me and, and connect with me at hbcuheroes.org. Uh, I do have a, I'm not a, I'm on Facebook, but I don't um, quite follow it, uh, get on as much as I should. 
Um, I had a camp, George Lynch coach on IG. Uh, so you can, I'm on social media and I, I do try to respond to everyone. And uh, I, I try to post things that I'm, I'm involved with. Uh, we had an event for the Final Four. We got an esports uh, competition coming up for HBCUs. So I'll be a little bit more active now. Like you said, we got all this downtime. We got to take advantage of it. Great. Well, George, stay healthy during all this and continue the great work you're doing down there in Atlanta. And again, thank you for being a guest on Beyond the Whistle. All right. Thanks, Pat. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Whistle. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. It's the best way to stay updated on the newest episodes. Beyond the Whistle is a production of McCant Sports, a sports executive search and talent solutions firm. To learn more about McCant Sports, visit McCantSports.com. 